This is SciBite, episode 79, for January 29th, 2013. Welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science show, live Tuesday evenings over at jblive.tv and fresh for download Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we talking about in this week's episode? We're going to take a look at multitasking abilities, red pens, tractor beams, bicycle airbags, tracking Twitter, Spacecraft updates, viewer feedback, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Holy smolies. That is a big yes. show. Why don't we start then with that uh, with that multitasking story with the news? Because I have a feeling I'm not going to like it. I guess our first story is the multitasking story. Am I right? It is. You are correct. Your multitasking ability is proficient. <laughs> All right. So tell me about this. All right. So obviously people believe they have, you know, they multitask efficiently. Right. But a new study is actually indicating the people who multitask the most, you know, like talking on your cell phone while driving, uh-huh. are actually the least capable of doing so. Wow, really? So how does that work? Because it seems like it'd be like like if you, you do it a lot, maybe you become, you know, it's like exercise or training. Yeah. Well, there was a study. It had like a little over 300 undergrads. Uh, you know, basically split between females and males around the age of 21. And they, you know, got a course credit for volunteering for this project. You know, they put them through a whole battery of tests. They had like a mock, almost like a driver's ed class. So you had a little car <laughs> and you had to text while doing stuff. Or uh, another one was you had to uh, do what's called an operation scan, which is like memorization and math computation all at the same time. So it's, you have to have numbers and letters and you have to string them all together. Oh, okay. So like answer all of these in a string is two plus four, six. G is three minus two, two. A is four times three, 12. And you're supposed to be able to spit out true, G, false, A, true. And this is kind of testing your ability to how well you can all do these multitasking abilities. Huh. But the people who were actually do it weren't doing it so much because they have the ability, but the, the fact that they're less able to block out distractions oh, and focus on a single task. Ah, okay. So by doing that, they're not really focusing on any one thing. And in fact, there's some theory that you're overconfident. I think 70% of the people in the study said, oh, I'm definitely above average and <laughs> multitasking abilities. Right. And obviously that's not going to happen. So. It's kind of like everybody always says, man, everybody else just drives so bad in the rain. Yeah. It's never you, of course, that drives bad in the rain. Never. Oh, no, that. never. No. Like that, well, this like is that'll interesting happen. Because I, uh, I, I mean, I definitely, I'm definitely sure that's where my multitasking comes from mm-hmm. is just, you know, uh, not tuning things out. And to that end, like when I edit, I generally am very focused. And uh, to the extent of where I sometimes won't hear something or, you know, I like will have multiple things playing at once, but I only hear the one thing that I... Yes. Yeah. You know, so it's, it kind of depends, varies from tasks. But I know like, you know, the, the whole reason I ever thought I could do shows and switch the camera myself at the same time while I'm pulling up web pages and holding a conversation with my co-host is because mm-hmm. of multitasking. But it's probably because I'm thinking of those things... Uh, anyways, I've been thinking, oh, we should probably be showing this. Oh, we probably want to talk about this next. So since I'm already thinking about those things, I like, I do them. Does that make yeah, sense? It does, yeah, it doesn't mean that nobody is particularly, you know, it doesn't mean you can't be good at multitasking. But it means that there, since so many people think they're awesome at it, that <laughs> there's, you know, if I think I'm awesome at multitasking, then yeah, sure. Why don't I talk on the phone in the car? It's it's not a big deal. I'm awesome. So you, yeah, I'm awesome. So if you're overestimating your ability, maybe you're doing it too much. You're, you're surpassing your actual ability. Huh. How do you know? 
it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's these specific tests, but generally on the whole, they said that people who didn't multitask, like while they were driving or things, were actually the best. Sure. Well, yeah, whenever you dedicate yourself to something. Yeah. But I'm kind of with you. I'm like, multitasking? Actually, I thought, yeah, I'm good at it. And then they're like, well, actually, it's the inability to focus on one thing and doing a whole bunch of different stuff. <laughs> and I was like, that's what makes me good at my job. Yep. <laughs> is thinking about all sorts of crazy stuff at the same time. Yeah. And, and when I'm actually programming, I have like a bit of music in one ear that nobody else, I can't hear anybody else in the office. Right, right. Yeah, big you time, know? big time. Yeah. My, yeah. You know, my boss is always wandering around talking on the phone or giving some interview. And, you know, new people come on to my job. They're like, how do you tone that out? Tone what out? I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, that. Yeah. What's rough for me is sometimes I go into offices where they have real liberal use of the uh, intercom system through the phones. Oh. And so you get these really loud, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yes, okay, I'm trying to focus. Jarring. Yeah, it is. Or, or, the, or the places where when the, phone, when the front phone rings, after a ring or two, everybody's phone rings. That's really distracting, too. Oh, goodness, Especially yes. They have high call, high call volume. And all those things. I, I have really kind of built myself a little cave that I can stick myself into focus. Yeah. I mean, I, in college, I couldn't do my homework if there was no one else in the room. I had to have the TV on low or the radio on low in order to use that as a white noise for myself. Yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty, I, was like, I think the white noise thing's pretty common. Yeah. Well, I always blamed it on the fact that I had two little brothers. <laughs> you need some activity like, going on. Something I was there. like, <laughs> something has to be background because if there's <laughs> silence, it means something's about to happen. Right. Could be, there, there could be monsters in that silence. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this whole thing is all about... So... Mostly they're thinking, they're like, well, people who are most likely to talk in the cell phones, you probably shouldn't. But obviously there are a lot of jobs who are on the road that require you to do something. Um, or you feel like you need to do something because otherwise it's pull off the road, handle a client, get back on the road. Yeah, yeah. But And it's tough it's, when you're, you're stuck in, or when you're stuck in traffic for two hours. It's tough not yeah. to jump on the phone. Yeah. And I mean... Of all the participants, about uh, 13, I mean, most of them spent about 13% of their driving time talking on the cell phone. Huh. So, I actually over, don't like talking on the phone and driving. No, neither do I. I prefer the downtime. It's nice to have some peace and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's funny because that actually matches up. There's some, you know, federal estimates that one in 10 drivers are on the phone at any given time. Oh, I, be I much, believe that for sure. And be that more than matches that. right up. Oh, yeah, that matches pretty much right up what they thought of, thought of. Oh, interesting. But it's the whole idea that maybe you're just taking consideration you may not be, okay, you're slightly less awesome than you think you may be. Yeah. Do a little self-audit when you're doing yeah. it. Yeah. Go on the, roll it on the safe side. You always so you know the guy. You always know the guy, too, because he's, he's driving down the freeway, he's yakking his face off, and he's been driving for 10 minutes with the blinker on. Yeah, And it's like, okay, or, if you were fully paying attention, you'd realize right now that that light is flashing on your dashboard. And maybe making yeah. a clicking, some sort of noise or something. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's even scarier when they forget the kindergarten rules of coloring inside the lines. <laughs> there are specific rules you learn in kindergarten. Color inside the lines. Maybe they're just drunk, Heather. Give them a break. They could just be drunk. I don't like that answer either. Oh. Still, color inside <laughs> the lines. <laughs> yeah, you drunks. All right, well, any other thoughts on that one? No, it's just, wait, what was that? I, I mean, I'm not focusing on one thing. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. All right, well, uh, let's take a break here because Heather has a great pick for us this week. And, yes. uh, you know, I've picked some Star Wars books, but I think you've picked a real doozy here. Tell me about this one. Yeah, this one happens directly after uh, Return of the Jedi. I mean, love that. I love that. hours after Darth Vader's, you know, funeral pyre is still flaming up. And, you know, there's some exterior uh, alien force that comes in and they have to go. Leia's like, oh, sweet, diplomatic action. Let me go. And in the meantime, Obi-Wan Kenobi appears to Luke and says, uh, yeah, you should get over there, too. Right now. So he's going and just kind of this whole idea of now the universe. There hasn't been a Jedi in 20 years. Uh. 
And so now everyone goes, huh. Jedi shows up out of nowhere, kills the Emperor, kills Darth Vader, helps the Republic take down the Empire altogether. Let's hope he doesn't come here. So this this planet is sort of an Imperial-controlled planet. And I think, what was it? I was told he had a little bit of maybe sexual tension with the uh, mayor or leader of this planet. But, you know, he's all, he's kind of bringing together of what everything means now that he's like the first Jedi back. You know, everyone's kind of giving him this kind of respect, like, let's not mess with him. What I love about it, I mean, I really love, I really love the idea that it picks up right after the last movie there, you know. And so it's Star Wars, The Truce at Bakura. So I'm yeah, saying, all right. Bukura. And here, I'll just play a quick sample of it because, you, you know, I want to uh, give you guys an example. The Audible books that we recommend when they're these Star Wars ones are just fantastic. I've got to keep these two crystals apart. It's a self-destruct of some sort. Crystals? Electrite crystal leads. The mechanism's trying to push them together. Let them touch. Poof. The whole fusion engine. Tumbling slowly above the blue glimmer of Endor, Luke spotted Wedge's X-Wing. Alongside it drifted a nine-meter-long cylinder bearing Imperial markings, fully as long as the X-Wing and almost all engine, a type of drone ship the Alliance still couldn't afford. You can hear the production quality, and this one I actually kind of like. It's three hours and two minutes. Now, some Audible books are, you know, way, 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 way longer than that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I I have a series of books that's like 22 hours long. Uh, but three hours is actually great for that kind of thing because you can jump in, see if you like it, you get the high production value, and it's also for me, it's like it's it's, it's kind of like a popcorn book. Like I'm, I'm really into some heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. I take a break with this, and what's great is if you use the link that we'll have in our show notes. Now you do have to use the link to get this, but if you're the if you're a first time Audible customer, you can actually get that book for free by using our affiliate link, uh, and you get to keep it if you cancel the Audible membership. I'm an Audible Gold member. I get two books a month, and uh, I just put that in my wish list, Heather. So thank you. Awesome. I'll be picking that one up. I want to give a quick plug just before we get out of here. If uh, you're a gamer or you do even like, you know, like a little Minecrafting or something like that, go to jbgame.tv and uh, join the uh, Google Plus gaming community over there, folks, and uh, tell them what kind of games you want to play. And uh, they're organizing a community. It's just the very beginnings of a community organization. And they're working on getting, like, official Jupiter Broadcasting game servers and uh, getting the TeamSpeak stuff all figured out, which, which we, we have all of that stuff. Uh, but they're kind of uh, organizing it all around a few games and things like that. So if you guys, if anybody out there might like to participate in that, go to jbgame.tv. All right, Heather, well, let's move on to the news bite. Ba-ba-da-bum. What is yes. our first story in the news bite? Is this one of those times where science catches up to the stuff we kind of already know? <laughs> so sociologists claim they've had published a paper that says when teachers use a red pen to add comments, you perceive it more negatively than if they used any other pen, color pen. First of all, hilarious somebody actually did a study on this. Yes. Second of all, well, I do agree. <laughs> yes. It's like, gee, yeah. Well, it's one of those times where scientists, you know, they go, you know, that's true. I feel I always felt like this. Let's make a study. Well, red pops, right? I mean, yeah. And, and I mean, if you want to get really gross, it's it's also the color of blood. Yeah, well, whatever the reason, they actually had two researchers. They got almost 200 undergraduate students given four versions of a already graded essay by some unknown instructor. So it's like, this is a graded paper from unknown teacher. And you had to deem the marks. You know, are they high quality? Are they low quality? And, you know, give your feeling about what, what you feel like the professor was talking about. So some were written in red, others were written blue. <laughs> you know, and what did the you know how they felt about what the instructor had written? What's you know suggest what grade they would have given the essay, and how they felt about what it was written. Now, when they finished the whole thing, each person was given a questionnaire to kind of figure out you know some more concrete data. Yeah, and the student volunteers they didn't seem to be impacted. Um, by agreeing with the comments, huh. you know, blue versus red. Okay. But when they disagreed, it was much different. When they, you know, for the most part, they agreed. But when they did disagree, it was far different. It was so mainly negative. So, like, they almost took it as, like, how we take caps on the internet. Like, the teacher yes. was really, like, c- criticizing. Oh, yes, exactly so. That 
just the things written were were harsh. <laughs> you know, it's like doctor with a terrible bedside manner. It's the truth. You know, it's the truth no matter what you say, but it's how you say it. And just so it was kind of that kind of theory. Maybe maybe they should. Red pens may be a little abused. Maybe written too little too much. Oh come on! So, I say you gotta give you gotta give people a little sting from time to time. Say no, you got that wrong. Yeah, but these researchers are going well. Maybe teachers should think about blue every once in a while too, or some other color. So, uh, but the, so they did all this research, but they didn't quite zero in on why red provokes that reaction. See, why would be a very different study. Right. No, I understand. First, sure. you know, first you have to prove that. You know, it tends towards that direction. That yes, yes, there is a correlation that red markers mean you think the teacher is more angry at you or thinks down upon you even more. Now they think that now they might do another study that says why. And with that, they'd have to do, you know, fMRIs, you know, functioning MRIs when they look at your brain while you're reading this stuff or talk about exactly how you're feeling about various things. And there's so many different factors that would come into that yeah yeah <laughs> well so maybe they'll do a, one now that they've done this study maybe they will so don't feel bad when everyone obviously knows that when the teacher puts a little frowny face on your paper you're really sad now you can say si- there's some science to it yep there's science to how maybe that'll make you people feel. feel better yeah now you know about once every other week you have to come on the show and tell me about how Star Trek has once again been being proven right by modern day science. Now is this another one of those occasions? Sort of, yes. Okay. <laughs> so yes, people, Star Trek. You may have heard it in the science news. Tractor beams. Yeah, that was a big one. It got a lot of attention this week. Last week. Yes. Yeah. So, but don't get all excited. This isn't anything more than you know, like little blood cell size stuff. Okay. All right. Okay. We gotta start somewhere, Heather. Yeah. So light manipulation techniques have existed since the 1970s. The whole idea is that, but this is the, because light draws things away. This is the first time that light has been used to pull them, although at a microscopic level. So the light particle is like dragging something along? Yes. Now, generally, we've, we've seen things for a long time that says normal light and matter interact with something by Pushing away, just the photons themselves have a radiation force, like on comets. You know, there's a picture in the show notes that says sometimes you see two tails off a comet. One is like all the dust, you know, kids walking along the carpet, all sorts of, with a cookie, there's cookie crumbs falling behind him. That's the dust. (laughs) But there's another tail, and that's pointing straight away from the sun. So... Oh, and they think the sun's light is pushing yeah. it that way. Yeah, the photons itself push that push push that to uh, in a specific direction. So you've got the dust trail about where it's been, and then you have this other tail that says this is where the sun's photons have pushed it away. So that's generally how things work. Is you you know you can use a laser or a light to push things around and because is this, of that force. Is this maybe how a so this is how a solar sail works too. Yeah, but in this case they're being able to negate that force or put it in a negative direction. So they've switched it so that now that light is pulling matter to it. That's, that's, that's really, that, now that seems pretty in, impressive. Yeah. And in fact, they're being able to dial in the size object that they can pull in. Ooh. So they'll dial it in, dial it in so that a specific size, you know, cells go to it. Or if you put it in a different dial, then different size. So being able to specifically dial into a specific size of cell, which right now there's a lot of things in the biomedical applications that are that are being seen right away. Let's ah. say maybe you could pull off specific cells out of a blood sample and let you count things a lot better. So you can say, you know, dial it into the specific size of what you want, pull them all away, then count what's of that size out of a whole blood sample. Oh, that's interesting. So that's really a lot of what they're going for right now. Of course, right. Also, they've seen that things held by this, you know, tractor beam force field, as I put my fingers in quotes in the air that you <laughs> cannot see. Okay. 
um, they sort of rearrange themselves to form a structure that actually makes the beam even stronger. Whoa. So the the items, the objects themselves that are being tracked or being in are sort of used as a magnifying glass to pull more stuff in. Huh. That's interesting. Heather, it's going to happen. You combine that with warp drive, we got ourselves the beginnings of a good star fleet. Fleet. Yep. Yep. So far, only for microorganisms. Well, you got to start somewhere. But, Yeah. So they get, you know, they get the head start. Actually, it sounds like what they're actually maybe building is the annular confinement beam to the transporter. Because, you know, the <laughs> annular confinement beam is what keeps all of the uh, particles uh, in one consistent spot as they are transported from the ship to the surface and back up. Ah. So when you come on the show and tell me they're working on annular confinement beams, I'm going to be excited. Okay. All right. I called it. Just by the way, I called it. Okay. All right. Well, then uh, with that story in, then that means it must be time for the two-byte news. What? <laughs> All right, Heather, what is our first story in the two-byte news? All righty. Bicycle airbags. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Not on the bicycle itself. Okay. So, oh, well, okay. The, yeah, in the U.S., one percent of the people you know ride around on bikes. Now, this is actually happening in the Netherlands, where you know they have an eight, you know, one in eighteen percent of the population, but twenty six percent of the population rides bike. So, a little over a quarter of the people do. Okay, okay. So they're a little more serious over there about it, probably yeah. because their gas prices are ridiculous. Yeah, but so there's so many people. There's worries about you know cars hitting bicycles. Sure. So this is this Dutch company is working on a car airbags that deploy outside the vehicle. So they kind of on impact they pop up from under the hood and cover parts of the windshield to kind of cushion the driver or the biker. Right, right. So like as he's flying over my over the hood of my car uh, and is about to land on my windshield, these the car somehow detects the impact and determines that's a biker and not like a street pole, and then deploys airbags. Yeah, and it deploys those airbags to cover part of the windshield and kind of decides just to kind of, of course, it's not going to keep them from injury, but it's going to decrease the injury. That's interesting. I'm so watching, uh, you've, you've included a few videos in the show notes. Uh, yeah. I'm watching a demo of it. It doesn't really seem to provide a lot. It's more like, well, maybe he doesn't shatter his shoulder as much. Yeah. Well, they actually saw the dummies in the collection had fewer and less severe energies, injuries, Okay, up to 45% of the time. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're going to, you know, instead of hitting against metal and glass, you're hitting against an airbag. That makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, your brain is useful. And when it hits the, the, the windshield, maybe you only want a concussion. Right. <laughs> instead of losing your brain. Huh. Yeah. Concussions are nice in the overhaul, you know, in the overall view of being hit by a car. So when you were uh, reading about this, did you see anything in there about uh, like uh, how, w- what kind of technology it's using to determine that it needs to deploy those airbags? Like how does the car uh, know? You know, I'm not quite sure. My guess would be some sort of accelerometers or you know, similar. Like sensors probably in the bumper too, right? Yeah, similar to the ones that we have on the car. Maybe it's so that there's different levels. So maybe, uh, you know, striking a car has a large value, and that pops your your normal airbag out so you don't headbutt the steering wheel. But if there's a smaller, maybe it hits the bike. I know, it seems like that would be odd, like someone would be mad and come up and kick your car. Right, or you maybe like you're parallel parking and you bump the guy in front of you as you're, as you're pulling in, right? Yeah, but with a quarter of the population riding bikes then car to car would probably be less of an issue than it is here. There's obviously a higher percentage of, much higher percentage of bikers. So they might take it into consideration that it would be worth worth playing it safe. Yeah. But I'm not well, quite sure. It didn't, I don't think it really went into the, the how. It was just I saw this and thought, huh. Well, if you think about it, uh, might as well. I mean... Uh, what's the worst? Well, so, so maybe once it once maybe once or twice it accidentally goes off. But if they have a good warranty or something like that, that's not too big of a deal, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Curious to see if we actually see that. Uh, that was uh, the cars they were demoing on were Volvos, I think. Go figure. 
Yeah. Volvo's got a rep for that. Uh, but there you go. Heather has a link to one, two, three, four, five, six, something like it's, that. Five videos in the show notes. Yeah, they have one large sort of promo video about the whole thing. And I put a whole bunch of clips to kind yeah. of go specifically to various various spots. And I left out some of the parts of the hits without the airbags in case you really don't want to see that. Aww. Some of them were well, but, some of them weren't. I mean, obviously it's a dummy. So yeah. it's nothing crazy, but that's the, that's the I still part. wanted to let people be able to skip that part. You this know, is the meat and meat and potatoes part of the video. Not not just for bikers too. I wonder, like, uh, I wonder, I wonder pedestrians, if it, pedestrians, or I wonder if it just helps protect your windshield because windshields are expensive. <laughs> You're running into a pedestrian or a bicycle. Or what is Chris or worried a, about? Or a or a deer. Or a deer. And what is Chris worried about? His windshield. Or a mailbox. You know, maybe because you know what the no, worst no. thing is if you go to run over a mailbox and you break off the mailbox and it flies up and breaks your windshield. Nobody oh, wants like, that to happen. Yeah, but you know that's beyond the point. The first thing you brought up was you know if you hit somebody, so the biker comes along, you get hit, you hit him, and you're like, man, you better replace my windshield. Well, uh, well, course, would, you know, if he was assuming he was in an okay mood, I mean, if he was okay. a little cranky from the whole accident thing, I might, you know, try to just reach out through his insurance company or something. Yeah. Yeah, I ran into somebody on my bike once at school, and they got up to be all mad, and I hobble up because I twisted my knee. They look at me like, oh, I'm not so mad anymore. <laughs> yeah, you've paid a price. <laughs> you've paid your price. I'm like, thanks. So uh, I heard uh, there was a little uh, rumors brewing on the Twitter. Yes. They went through, and they were analyzing the data from the Twitter rumors from the Higgs boson. And they started looking at, the dynamics of social media. And it, it's so like, not just that. It's so, looking at it as a whole. I love this. So like all the different conspiracy theories or predictions people have been making, they sort of did a, an analysis of those. Yeah, specifically about the Higgs boson. They went through and they picked out all the people. <laughs> they started seeing, when did the rumors start? And so they actually started around the 1st of July. The, it actually came out on the 4th. So you can watch the video, and there's kind of a little sprinkling here or there. And then on the... Um, se- July second, uh, I believe, there was the U.S. sort of the te- uh, Tevatron made some announcement. There's something big coming on, you know, one day before, and so the rumor started even a day before that, and three days before the actual announcement. And then when the announcement happens, you can definitely tell in the video what happens. You know, there's sprinkles, and you like I watched it, and they got to the second. I'm like, oh, there it is, because you have a whole bunch of blue, right? And then it kind of fades down. And then suddenly the whole map is just clumped with all these Twitter feeds. Yeah, you know, and uh, everybody had a had a uh, Large Hadron Collider joke. Oh, yeah. Everybody had one. Like, you know, oh, LHC, black holes, oh, time travel, oh, you know, bird dropped crumbs, that kind of, everybody had something. Yeah, but it wasn't just, they weren't just looking at it, it's like, oh, how fast did our rumor mode spread? It was actually looking at how information spreads on social media. Huh. It was the first really big science announcement that they've been able to track with Twitter wow. like this. Interesting. So they're able to say, these countries were working on it. You know, the U.S., a number of European countries were all had scientists working on it. So they're kind of seeing that it starts there. <laughs> so the rumors started there and they started spreading. So it's kind of being able to look and say, all right, Here's how things spread. Who, when they tweeted something, how fast did it spread from that one person? So they're kind of using it as even global marketing to say, all right, this hundred people on Twitter got like a hundred thousand other people to talk about it. So, so you can, it kind of gives them an idea of how to manipulate messages, how to Make it go to a whole bunch of people. How to how to take advantage of social media. How to take advantage of it. How right. to keep the news about something going. So all these sort of things were included in it. But oh man, it was yeah. all people are going to be mining. This is just the beginning. People are going to start figuring out how to how to work this thing. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, any type of media, they always go yep. through and yep. figure this out. I just thought it totally popped up on me that it was because it was all about the Higgs boson. Yeah, which is cool. and all the rumors as it started up and then. When the actual event happened and sort of as it petered off. Very cool. And yeah. uh, 
and uh, you just see everything light up. All right, Heather, well, guess what? The Sci-Fi 2000 tells me we have a spacecraft update. All right, I just dialed it in here. What do we got? Opportunity Rover. It's on Mars, and it's big cousin. Well, big grandkid, whatever you want to call it, curiosity. Maybe taking up a lot of the news, but Opportunity is still chugging along. Wow, like ever now. Yeah, nine years of service, so it's starting up into its 10th year. Wow. And so, I mean, they were originally supposed to do a three-month mission. You know, we've always heard about that. You know, Spirit went quiet in March of 2010, but Opportunity is really still chugging. That's really impressive. In fact, it's starting to get into, there's this whole distance traveled by rovers on any you know, external body, the moon or Mars. Okay, yeah. And the person or the rover that traveled the farthest is the Soviet-era Lunokhod 2, which drove on the moon for about 23 miles. Hmm. Next in line came the Apollo 17 moon rover, and they went for, you know, 22.3 miles. But really close behind it is actually the Opportunity rover. It's gone just a little over 22 miles. Oh, wow. Okay, that's not bad for that slow little guy. Yeah, it's only a third of a mile shy of going farther than the Apollo 17 rover. Now, it kind of went, eh, but the Apollo 17 rover was a dune buggy with a person driving on it. A moon dune buggy. Right. So, yeah, you could drive around really fast and just go here and there, and it wasn't stopping for science for six weeks here or there. Right. So, it's pretty good for a remote control robot that you're using to do science every, every once in a while. Now, and what's, what's cool is I was looking at all of the data over the last nine years saying how many miles has it driven for that year? Kind of looking at how many, you know, what is a mileage is essentially. Yeah. You know, how many miles per year? And based upon that, I think that unless they make some stops, some long distance period stops for science or equipment that... In the next two months, it might overtake the distance traveled by the Apollo 17 rover. Ooh. And in fact, it may even become the furthest distance. It might overtake the Lunokhod, so be the item that's gone the farthest in the next six months. So my guess is this year, almost certainly, definitely, it will become the rover that have traveled the farthest that we've ever had. So it's it's coming up into that... Into those mile markers. Right now it's in third place, but it's it's almost to second place, and I think it's going to hit first place later this year. So the, the slowest little race ever. <laughs> hey, the little rover that could. No, totally. I'm really impressed. Yeah, he's been nine years old. I don't mind. How, how many times older than he should have been? Slow and steady opportunity, right? Yes. Slow and steady. Uh, now we have a little incoming communications. All right, what do we got? Uh, last week we talked about dyscalculia. That is sort of the dyslexia of math in, essence, in, essence, in essence. Yeah. So that you know, you're having a hard time doing math in a specific way. Right. You know, they, they pop up two sets of three dots and you count the dots, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, instead of your brain seeing them in two clumps of three. Right. So it's just a different way that they're saying, you know, the mind works. We had um, James Lewis actually wrote in saying... He's kind of concerned that there was really an overdiagnosis of, you know, specific labels. Uh. You know, that he was, that maybe it could be that you learn differently. He said, for, for example, himself, the way the teachers were teaching just wasn't working for him. I had that myself where, you know, I, I felt bad, but I just showed up to class. <laughs> and I wrote the things that the teacher wrote on the board just so I have them. And otherwise, I'd ignore the teacher. Then I'd go home and learn it. I'm like, okay, now I know. Like, the more I listened to the teacher, the more I got confused. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had one professor who you know, was teaching me astronomy. Obviously, I, I have a slight passion for it. And she got frustrated because the way she taught, she was like, you know, ra- sending out radio waves in AM. And I was right. picking it up in FM. I was just going to say, it's like an impedance mismatch or it's like a different frequency kind of a thing. Oh, it was yep. a completely different <clears throat> frequency. Yep. And she just got frustrated frustrated yeah yeah that happens and she like called me after school she's like all right you know after class she's like all right you know what 
this is obviously not working. Let's figure something else. And uh, by the way, I'm going to make sure that you don't have to take any other classes from me. We'll work something else out. Oh. No, like I worked with her fine doing research or, you know, helping her out doing not in the classroom. Yeah. So she's like, you know what? This this is going to be best for both of us. We'll figure (laughs) it out. Because she was getting mad. She was grading me more harshly. Oh. Because she saw I wasn't enjoying class. Yeah. So, so you learn you know, differently case, than how she taught. Yes. And is there more overdiagnosis of students in the, in, you know, quote unquote, the system? Yeah. I have family in schools. I was like fifth and sixth grade. A third of the student base was lining up in front of the nurse's office to take the Ritalin. You know, so there's in some degree a overdiagnosis of things just because it's simple. Yeah. You know, it's kind of weird. They want to take, you know, wanting to increase school grades. So maybe they take away recess to give them more time in the classroom. But that actually decreases grades, especially for boys. Right. In elementary school, because they need to get out and run around. Right. If they don't have that, then they can't concentrate. So there are a lot of things going on that aren't just, you know, diagnosing someone. Now, I mean, the reality is, is that everybody's brain is different and we come at a standardized approach to teach everyone with this methodology that just doesn't, it works for some, it works great for some, and it doesn't work for other people. Yeah. When you're teaching a populace, you teach so that you catch 70, 80% of everyone. Now, if you're in the 20, 30% of others, you're, you're not quite as, as, uh, as lucky. So in some ways you have to learn how best you learn. You know, there was a test that somebody, a high school teacher gave. She's like, all right, answer these 20 questions. And it kind of gives you an idea of how you learn. Are you a visual learner? Are you auditory? You know, do you have to do things? You know, I had, um, whenever my aunt and my grandmother were trying to go somewhere, my grandma, you couldn't, she couldn't look at a map. My aunt couldn't hear it. So one looked at the map and spoke about what was going on, and the other one heard it and was able to do something. Yeah, you know, isn't my mom and I are completely unable to communicate with each other about directions to where, like, like if she's trying to find where I'm at, or if I'm trying to get to where she's at, or if I'm trying to tell her how to get to someplace, we do not, we do not communicate. Like it's almost like we're not even speaking the same language. Yeah, it's really so. There, you know, there are obviously very different ways that everyone's brains work, and oh, you yeah. learn very differently, and it's. Really is, you know, if you're lucky enough to be able to, you know, learn in the type of style that that specific teacher is teaching, then awesome. But maybe you're better if you take all the notes and you go home and, you know, you hammer it out. Or um, in college, I had a class where I was able to catch about half the stuff the teacher said. My friend was able to catch the other half. And then we'd go, we'd have our study group together and we'd figure everything out. And then we split off and, you know, we were... Essentially, our study groups and our notes were teaching 80% of the class. You know, everyone else was like, oh, now I get it. (laughs) So there are so many different ways. Now, if you are supposed, you know, quote unquote diagnosed, if you already have one or you might end up getting one, then depends if you're comfortable with that, then you're comfortable with that. Or if you're not, you know, do what you can. But if you are and you're okay with that, then really look at what exemptions are you available to you. You know, I had a brother who was dyslexic. Now that meant that he had to be given a little extra time on essays. Oh. You know, or he was allowed to write up an essay in class and then take it home and type it out. Oh. And then bring it to school the next day. Huh. And, you know, by the time he got to, you know, older and he was an adult in college, then, you know, maybe it wasn't pronounced as when he was younger, he'd learned to sort of deal with a lot of it, but it gave him that little bit of extra that kind of let him settle down. You know, if you're not worried about that so much. Right. You know, it helps with the anxiety of it. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you have this dyscalculia, you know, quote unquote, um, diagnosis, does that make you available for a little extra time? You know, maybe then you can reduce that anxiety, you know, to be able to sort of use it kind of as a as a passport to what you might be able to get or be available for. So you can kind of look at it that way a little bit. But yeah, don't don't necessarily say that's the end all be all. I had, you know, somebody come back from 
you know, some sort of meeting in high school and be like, oh man, I just got diagnosed with ADD. I was like, <laughs> what? They're like, here. It was like a list of 10 things. They're like, you need four of these be, to be ADD. And I was like, huh, nine out of 10. Yeah. The only thing that I had shy of being a perfect 10 out of 10 was the fact that I could sit down and read for more than 30 minutes at a time. Right. I was like, oh, that doesn't necessarily mean that I need, you know, Ritalin. Maybe it need, means that I have a harder time focusing on one thing at a time. Remember when we talked about multitasking? Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of different things going on, but wandering about his subject, I don't want to miss it. But yeah, they're don't over overthink the fact that they're everyone has a quote unquote diagnosis or everyone has a quote unquote label. So right, right, yeah. a lot of the time they're just doing that to say you're not in the 80% that normal you know, streamlined teaching is going for. Right. So that means, you know, does it give them an excuse to say, oh, of course you're, you're not doing as well as everybody else. You have this label. Or maybe it, you know, it, it, the best case scenario, maybe it allows you to have, you know, an excuse or an exemption or sort of a, a ticket into a different way of doing things. So yeah. kind of just, See where it goes. There you go. All right. Well, if you want to email the show, you can do that. SciBite at jupiterbroadcasting.com or hit that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or you can tweet Heather, JB underscore Mars underscore base. Now, Heather, why don't you put your science spacesuit on? Let's go over to Mars for a curiosity update. Lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. All right, so what do we what do we got in the uh, curiosity update? All righty, we have had nighttime imaging now. I was the just going to say I was, we need some nighttime images. Yeah, it's the first time that we've ever taken pictures of things um, at night where it's lit up. You know, they've actually seen party time. You know, it's sunset, so they could see the moons or anything, yeah. but the, the um, hand lens imager actually has, you know, this tool, seven foot long arm, but it has some LEDs, white LEDs on it. Ah, like its own little flash. Yeah, so it has a little flashlight that they can shine, and it's actually able to, you know, they're able to take uh, 1.3 inches by one inch, so a little section, okay. light it up really, you know, really well, and they also have ultraviolet LEDs on there. So you can see it in white light and then ultraviolet light and sort of that'll give you an idea where are there fluorescent minerals. So if there's something green or yellow or orange or red, that all means more clear cut indications of fluorescence and kind of gives them an idea of something is there about what kind of rock or something is there. Maybe you get a better idea of, oh, that's a really funny spot. Let's go over there and look at that a little bit better. Yeah. So they're able to take this, you know, close-up images of this rock right in front of the uh, front left wheel tire. And actually, they'd gone over and kind of scuffed it with their, not necessarily the shoe, but the wheel. So they kind of rolled over it a little bit to break up the rock to kind of expose some of the the fresh material, you know, dust dust it off essentially, kind of break off and open a little bit and drove back and kind of went in and, took the pictures of the, so it was a clean piece of rock that yeah. you didn't necessarily brush off. But, so yeah, and in the ultraviolet light, you really need to take at night. Yeah. So able to take these images, so look at it with the white light, then see what it is in the fluorescent light, give them a better, better idea of what's going on, and, oh, this is the kind of, these specific materials that maybe fluoresce green, they look like this in the daytime. So maybe give them a better idea of, oh, that's an interesting spot. Wait, don't pass that up too fast. It looks it looks kind of blah during the day, but it's like when they take a black light to a crime scene and you see all yes. the splatters. Only this time it's rocks and it's not. Yeah, a black there's light. no murders on <laughs> Mars yet. Not yet. However, uh if they if Curiosity finds like a murder scene, that'd be pretty big news. Pretty big yeah. that'd be pretty big news. Yeah. Pretty big. All right. Well, any other thoughts on that one? No, I don't think so. Now, uh, you have a little note in here for uh, this week. Yes, I do. 
this Friday, um, February the 1st, is NASA's official Day of Remembrance. The, um, the three major tragedies in NASA's history happen pretty much within a week of each other by the calendar year. Right. Apollo 1 was on January 27th, 1967. The Challenger Space Shuttle was on January 28th, 1986. And Columbia, February 1st, 2003. So every February 1st, they kind of clump everything together and say, all right, this is our day to sort of remember everyone who's been lost in the line of space duty, essentially, of we're going through the process of exploring the universe. And these are the people who have, you know. Taken the risk. And paid, taken the risk. Paid with and their life. Paid with their, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Paid the price of. The exploration. So it's kind of a day that kind of stop and think about everything that's that's come before and then so it's not necessarily three different days of sadness all in a week. You know, you can kind of stop and think about everyone yeah. on the specific days, but then there is yeah. more ceremonious activities just on one day. Very good. All right, Heather. Why don't we jump in the time machine? You ready? I'm ready. All right, close the door. Here we go. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, okay. All right. All right, I like these. I like these sub one hundred year trips. See, this feels about yeah, right. Pre- it's not a little. It's not too jostling. It's uh, just forty yeah. years ago, February first, nineteen seventy two. Something big happened this week in science. What was it? Yeah. Yes, all students are happy. The handheld calculator, the first scientific handheld calculator, was introduced by Hewlett Packard. Yeah, for the cheap price of uh, three hundred ninety five bones. Yep. So <laughs> HP thirty five. It had thirty five keys. It could do log logarithmic trigonet. Trigonet, wow! I cannot speak today. Logarithmic, trigonet, trigonometric. Oh no, yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> oh no, it's okay. But it had all those functions with just you know one keystroke. Okay. A red LED display could give you scientific notation up to ten digits. Oh yeah, that red, red so, LED display was cool. Yeah. So eventually, it came down to you know one hundred ninety-five dollars. <laughs> but so I mean, within three years. 300,000 units have been sold, even at the hefty price in 1972. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was a pretty cool little device. And the computing power you could fit in your hand was impressive. Yes. Now, if nobody has used a Hewlett-Packard key uh, calculator, it's actually different than your normal calculator that you pick up at the, you know, the grocery or most people use. Yeah. It's a reverse Polish notation, which essentially is you don't need parentheses or an equal key. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's, I'm trying to remember exactly how to use it. I've d- used it a couple times. So it's like six plus three, enter. You use an enter that actually ends up being equal. And yeah. there's a whole bunch of different ways that you actually use the parentheses and, or don't use parentheses. So the people who use it say it is actually much faster in calculator competitions where you're going, you know, going for speed. They always say those are the best. Of course. Of course. And I tried one. So, okay, magically, uh, totally non-obvious. I'm a slight nerd. And I actually did calculator competitions. Okay. When I was younger. Okay. Right, I'm not so, going to judge. I'm not going to judge. Okay, you to- totally judge. That's fine. But <laughs> I don't care. So I had one year I used one of those. Another one I used just the standard. And I was more comfortable with the standard because I've been using it longer. So for me, it's it was easier. But... More importantly, they actually started coming out, which makes a lot of us happy. I, I don't have anything to say after that. That's calculated competitions. <laughs> I mean, they sound kind of intense in some way. So, <laughs> All right. Uh, should we uh, retune the SciBite 2000 here? Are you ready? Let's go. All right. Let's look up into the sky this week. All righty. On February the 1st, that's Friday at twilight, wow. look to the, uh, the star Spica will be to the right of the moon. And Saturn will be a bit farther away to the upper left of the moon. So when you look at the moon, there'll be two bright objects. Saturn will be to the upper left because it has the little rings so it's flying higher. And Spico will be to the right of the moon. And on rolling into Sunday, February the 3rd at twilight, now both Spica and Saturn are to the right of the moon. So Friday, it's easy because Saturn is high and to the left. And then rolling into Sunday, now they're both to the right of the moon. So it makes it a little bit harder. But in general, uh, Venus this week, about 20 minutes before sunrise, is going to rise in the southeast. 
Although each day as we go further into the week and month and year, it's going to be getting lower and lower each morning as sunrise hits on Mars front. Look to the fading sunset, lower in the south to southwest. Now there's going to be another red object in that area. That's a Fomalhaut. It is a red, I believe a red giant star, but it's far to its left. So if you see, if you happen to see two, then Mars is on the right because, you know, it's the right planet. Right, that's right. That's right. And our favorite Jupiter around here. You know, because I think Jupiter's pretty cool too. That's right. It's not just the internet's best broadcasting network. It's also a planet. It is. So look after sunset this week. It'll be high in the southeast sky. It'll be pretty much the first, you know, quote-unquote star you see over there. And the orange star, Aldebaran, will be to its lower left. So it'll be an orange object over there. But remember, it's not Mars. It is just an orange star, Aldebaran. And uh, to the upper right is Pleiades. So it'll be a little fuzzball of uh, stars hooked together. (laughs) A little fuzzball. A little fuzzball in the sky. They're so close together, they kind of look a little fuzzy. Yeah. Especially for those of us with not super vision. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But Saturn, we talked about earlier, about 1 a.m., is going to be to the east-southeast, moving to the high southern skies by dawn. So me, I am grumpy at 1 a.m., but by the time dawn rolls around, I would still be grumpy. But then I could look high in the southern skies and see it. That's cool. That's a little perk. Yeah. Not quite like a cup of coffee, but probably no. probably about as strong as a cup of coffee as you want. Yeah, but if you're up at dawn, then there's a couple of objects to see in the sky, maybe make the day slightly less evil. You're starting off at sunrise, you're like, oh, cool. Yeah. There's, there's a stuff planet in the sky. Out there. There's a planet out there. It has Yeah, rooms. I feel slightly happier. Yes, I like that. All right, Heather, well, I think that brings us to the end of the show, doesn't it? I think so. Holy smokes, what a great show. Now, folks, don't forget everything Heather talked about is linked in detail with extra notes in the show notes. Just go over to Jupiter Broadcasting, look for SciBite 79, and uh, then scroll down from the video, and you'll find links to also to the download page and the RSS feeds and all that stuff. And also, don't forget SciBite's live on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv. And don't forget you can follow Heather on Twitter, jb underscore mars underscore base. All right, Heather, well, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>